Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, we pray as David did in Psalm 51, uh, making that link between the necessity of knowing your mercy and the teaching and the receiving of your truth. So we all, uh, as uh, preachers and uh, listeners, uh, ask for your mercy, Lord, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, that you might blot out our transgressions, wash away all our iniquities, and cleanse us from our sins. For we know our transgressions, and our sin is always before us. Cleanse us, create new hearts in us, fill us with your spirit, that we might not only learn your ways, but teach transgressors your ways, and that sinners might turn to you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. In uh, 1988, Nicholas Winton appeared on an episode of the TV show, uh, That's Life, hosted by Esther Ranson. It's one of the most heartwarming and uh, tear-jerking bits of telly that you have ever seen. If you've not seen it, YouTube it later. You'll enjoy it. Um, Nicholas went and sat in the audience of Ra at Ranson's invitation because he'd actually kept something a secret for 50 long years. Back in 1938, when Hitler's troops were marching towards Czechoslovakia as it was then, thirsty for Jewish blood, Winton, a, a, a mere a 28-year-old stockbroker from London with a love for ice skating, no history of being a soldier or anything like that, decided that he was going to do something about this. And he traveled to Czechoslovakia, having planned and then personally attended to a rescue mission that saved the lives of 667 Jewish children from certain death. The thing is, for 50 years, nobody knew anything about it. He hardly told a soul, not even the children he rescued, knew that it was him until just a few weeks before Esther Ranson's show. Winton sat there uh, watching uh, Esther Ranson retell this quite incredible and remarkable uh, salvation story. And she had this big book, this record book that he had kept of flicking through name, page after page, name after name, written in that book of life, essentially. The children that he had rescued and where they had gone to be settled in the UK. And as she read through it, he sat there looking quite uncomfortable. I think it was a mark of the man's humility. But then she paused over one particular name and said the name. And there's one child listed here by the name of Vera Gissen. Vera Gissen. And she looked at Nicholas Winton and said to him, uh, Vera Gissen is in fact the lady who is sitting right next to you this evening. And he turned to her, and with an absolute look of shock in his face, she turned to him like she had been absolutely bursting to do this for the entire night. 
And she turned around and she just threw her arms around him. She started, she gave him a kiss. She grabbed his hand. She was squeezing it. And it looked like it was pretty sore for the old gentleman, but nevertheless, he put up with it. She held onto it for as long as she could, pressing it down, holding it tightly. And just as everybody was kind of choking back the tears and putting away their hankies at this lovely little moment, Esther Ranson interrupted the emotion as Winton's tears flowed down his cheeks. She said, actually, do you mind if I ask, is there anyone else in our audience tonight who owes their life to Sir Nicholas Winton? If so, could you please stand up? And the four rows, every seat around him, people rose to their feet, as in the picture there. And he just couldn't believe it. He stood and watched these people express their joy, their gratitude. In a sense, given the salvation that he had won for them, it was all very muted, shall I say, British. I dare say afterwards that there were many more hugs and embraces, but some of them stood, clenched their hands together, and looked endearingly at him. They beamed. Of course they did. Those sitting closest to him held him, touched him, loved him, expressing not just their thanks for the new life that they received because of him, but expressing their love. And I want to say tonight that that is exactly what salvation does for you. And if, that, if that's how people saved from certain death express love for the rescuer, it should be no surprise to see in this passage, and actually in this very church family, People saved from their sins, showing even greater expressions of love for Jesus, the greatest of all rescuers. For Jesus, as this passage shows, as the whole scriptures declare, is worthy of extravagant expressions of love, great love. And the reason for that is because we know such a great salvation. We have been forgiven a great debt. And I want to show you that that's what this passage is about and hang it all under two particular headings. Number one, if you're taking notes, what we see in this passage is great love shown. Evidence that Jesus is worthy of extravagant expressions of love. This is verses 36 through to 39, essentially. Look with me, verse 1, and let's set the scene uh, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house. Uh, he went to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, if you've been following with us and tracking with us through Gospel of Luke so far, you realize that's quite surprising. Not the fact that Jesus is eating with people, that's common. And not even the fact that Jesus is eating with sinners, that's quite common. But that the Pharisee invited Jesus. I mean, three times, even in the last two chapters, we've read that the Pharisees rejected Jesus' claims to be the Son of God and the Messiah and dismissed his miracles. In fact, they were already plotting what they might do to him, as chapter 6, verse 11 points out. 
Now, maybe Simon, with those kind of plots in mind, thought, actually, this would be an ideal way to snare this Jesus. I'm going to get him along for dinner. I'm going to make him say something or do something that would give me all the ammo that I need to report Jesus for being the phony that he is. And more than that, to be the man who engineered this false Messiah's downfall. Okay, that's speculation. But you can see that there is something else going on. In any case, Jesus accepts Simon's invitation, and here they are reclining on benches around a table together with feet outstretched to the floor as they would do in those times when a woman of a certain reputation walks in. Who is she? Well, verse 37 is discreet, really. It says she's a woman who lived a sinful life. You might say, well, who hasn't? Correct. We all have. But when you read through and note the tones of the passage, and especially Simon's words shortly when he identifies the woman, there's good reason to suspect, suspect there's a particular kind of sin being highlighted. The word sinner should be read euphemistically, really, for prostitute. But what did she do when she came into and just crashed this dinner party? Well, the woman showed great love for Jesus. She broke in a sense, every social convention of the day in expressing her love for Jesus. Everything she did to everybody in that room cried, awkward. She turns up, verse 35, a sinner at a religious man's house too. She stands there sobbing, verse 36. That's kind of awkward. You know, imagine having a conversation with someone at the table while someone's sitting over here is just kind of sobbing away. Three, she kisses Jesus' feet. Like, that would make me uncomfortable. Wouldn't it make you uncomfortable sitting at dinner as someone's expressing that kind of emotion? I mean, here she is, having allowed her tears to fall on Jesus' feet. She decides that, oh, I don't even have a towel, maybe she's thinking. So she lets down her hair and she starts to dry them. Actually, in terms of societal norms back in that day, if there were any parents in the room with kids, they'd be covering their eyes. The Talmud, this, that collection of Jewish teachings dated back to this time, said that this was essentially as the same as a woman showing her top half in public and was worthy of a, a worthy reason for divorcing a wife, for letting her hair down in public. But then came the kisses. Kissing feet back then, of course, was a, a means of communicating your happy submission essentially to someone of royalty and kingly authority, and then, fourthly, she poured perfume on these feet of Jesus. She blows the family inheritance on a single momentary act of devotion. History shows us that alabaster jars of perfume were super expensive, but they were still common. They were worth almost a year's wages and often kept and handed down as family heirlooms and so on. But here she is. unhesitating in the breaking of the, the, the neck of the alabaster jar, pouring out what is probably her most valuable asset on Jesus' feet, the fragrance filling the noses, the upturned noses of everyone gathered around. Make no mistake, when you read this, this is absolutely shocking. A shocking display. Like a catch-your-breath kind of looking at other people around the room kind of, oh my word. Now some say, ah well, based on her history, I think it's appropriate to read into this that she's kind of confused, you know, her, her past is very 
a very near past. And she doesn't quite know how to suitably express her gratitude to Jesus. So they read something more than just devotion and affection into this. That's wrong. This is worship. This is love shown in response, great love shown in response to great forgiveness known. Somewhere, somehow, we're not told, she'd heard the gospel Jesus preached. She believed that all that Luke's told us so far, all that Jesus proclaimed concerning himself, all that John the Baptist claimed about him too, to reinforce the claims of Christ, that this is the Lord. She believed she was transformed. Now, the greatness of her love is plain to see in its own right. But, the, but compared to Simon, the Pharisee, we get his name later, compared to Simon's lack of love, her expression of love stands out all the more. The woman showed great love for Jesus, but Simon showed great contempt for Jesus. No love. Now, let's not forget who it is that dines at his table. This is the Holy One of Israel. This is the prophet Moses had foretold in Deuteronomy 18.15, and he was sharing dinner with this guy. The Lord of glory, the resurrection and the life, Jesus himself was at Simon's table speaking with him face to face. This great climactic moment of history that Simon himself as a Jew, as a Pharisee, was claiming to live for. This coming king who's going to be our redeemer. He's right there in front of him. He's hosting the Messiah king. But Simon is not amazed in the slightest. As he looked at Jesus, all he saw was a pretender. A young Nazarene who fancies himself as a prophet. He's not showing Jesus love. He's showing him contempt, disrespect. Even as he addresses him later, when Jesus said, can I tell you something, Simon? He's like, you tell me, teacher. Doesn't even call him a prophet at that point. He's addressing him on rabbinic terms. He's not worshiping Jesus. He is judging Jesus, as verse 39 proves. Simon said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, this guy's clearly not been listening. Jesus has not been claiming to be a prophet. He's claimed all along to be the Messiah King, the Lord himself. And Simon knows, well, prophets have God-given insight into things, especially people's sinful conditions. That's actually what they largely, in the Old Testament, address. And so he concludes, if he were a prophet, he would know exactly what's going on with this woman. So he can't be much of a prophet. But little does he know that Jesus is indeed knowing exactly what is going on in his own mind. So ultimately what we've got is a comparison that's set up for us. And comparing the two, even pausing at this point, who do you most closely identify with? Which one are you? The woman showing great love for Jesus, grateful, glad, unashamed to tell it, unashamed to express it. Or the Pharisee showing something somewhere in between indifference and contempt. Yeah, I'm not, I don't really care who this is. Sure, just come and have some dinner. Or are you, I'm going to, I'm, I, I hate this man. 
and I couldn't care less about what he thinks. I think what he says, I think he is wrong and I think he's dangerous. Where are you? Maybe sneering, judgmental, dismissive. Many are. Well, I would encourage you to pay attention to what's coming next. Because we were invited to make this comparison. We're invited to listen closely to what Jesus says because what he goes on to say is fundamentally the difference between the two. Jesus tells us that great love is shown essentially when his great salvation is known. Faith in Christ makes all the difference. That's why she responds the way she does. And actually that's why Simon responds the way he does. So point two is great salvation known. And Jesus, in response to Simon's uh, thought in verse 40, answers him. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And he tells this parable. Two people owed, him, owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more, he asks. Now, what this parable teaches according to what Jesus says, is that forgiveness awakens in saved sinners an overwhelming sense of love for Jesus. Okay? The parable is a story about two debtors. And notice the detail. Both are in great debt. Right? Back then, it would have been a shocking amount of debt as well. A denarius is essentially uh, a day's wages. So uh, it would take one person in this parable, 50 days to clear the debt, and the other 500 days. When you think about what it's like to pay off a loan or pay off a mortgage, you know that's going to be extended a lot longer than that. But both are in great debt, but clearly one has a greater debt to settle. And neither, notice that, neither has the ability to pay him back, even the one with the wee debt. But look at verse 42. Remarkably, he, the moneylender, who in this parable represents the Lord, he forgave the debts of both. And what he does is he absorbs the loss himself to free these debtors from the pain of trying to pay back their loans. He, the lender, takes the hit. Now, which of these two people in this parable would be happy about that? about the cancellation of their debts. Both of them, right? The one who owes 50 would be delighted about that. The one who owes 500 would be delighted about that. But who would be more thankful and more likely to express gratitude in more effusive and, if you like, extravagant ways? Well, Jesus' answer is very plain. It's the one who owed the greater debt. It's so plain and simple that even Simon himself says so. Simon replied, verse 43, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Of course it is. And Jesus is very cleverly telling this parable to point out the difference between the two people in the room. In short, Jesus is saying that the woman is the 500 uh, sinner. And her act of worship is explained by the fact that she's had her sins forgiven, her serious sins against God, 
cancelled out. Her indebtedness to God for her sin cancelled out. And Simon, well, Simon is a 50 denarius sinner. And actually, he can know the same joy. That's the kind of nuance, the little hidden bit there in the parable. There's an admission within what Jesus says as he, as he says it that Simon hasn't sinned to the extent that the woman has, but he is still a sinner. He is still indebted to the moneylender. Simon is still indebted to God. But Simon, like the woman, can also have his sins forgiven and his debts cancelled. And it's like Jesus, even in telling the parable, says, come on, Simon, has it not clicked yet? You too can know and believe and receive this great salvation and respond in the right way, in love and devotion toward me. But of course, in order to do that, he needs to come face to face with his sins. He needs to recognize that there is a, he has a need of Jesus and that there is nothing, as it says in the parable, he has no ability to cancel the debt on his own, to work to pay it off. And similarly, in our lives, there is no way that we can make ourselves right with God by our own efforts. There is nothing that we can do to clean ourselves up before God in a way that makes us 100% sinless, 100% righteous in his eyes. It's impossible. Which only serves to highlight the essential and indeed our desperate need of a rescuer, of someone to come and save us from certain death. So Jesus uses this woman in front of him, anointing his feet in this extravagant expression of devotion to evangelize the Pharisee and to show him who he is, to show him who Jesus is. So verse 44, verse 44, notice, then he, Jesus, turned, notice, to the woman, so he is looking at the woman, but he said to Simon. He is looking down towards the woman at his feet, but talking to the Pharisee at the head of the table. And essentially what Jesus goes on to say here between verse 44 and 46 is that actually while, we, while we're thinking about this woman here breaking every kind of social convention by letting down her hair and kissing my feet and breaking her alabaster jar of perfume all over me. Actually, Simon, you showed your great contempt for me by breaking every social convention. It's your frosty reception. It's basically what he's highlighting. You didn't show me the courtesy of washing my feet, which was a common courtesy back then. Streets were dirty back then. They didn't have carriages. They had animals that carried stuff along. Animals do things. Let the reader understand. And so... You, ha you didn't have Nikes or Timberlands or anything like that. So you just had sandals, like some of you are wearing. And uh, your feet would get pretty mucky. So they needed washed, plain and simple. He said, Simon, you didn't even wash my feet. But she did. She's actually been more courteous toward me than you have. She didn't, you didn't greet me with a welcome kiss. She has not stopped kissing my feet. Uh, you didn't dab my head with oil as a 
a little mark of welcome. I don't know what it would be for us. For us, it would be like, can I take your coat and make you a cup of tea would be the equivalent. Nobody's really dabbing head with oil this afternoon when they went for lunch, did they? No. Should we try? We could try that. Anyway, but she does. Simon the Pharisee doesn't even give Jesus a little puff of Paco Rabanne. She spends a year's worth of perfume on him because Jesus is worth it. He's saying, Simon, you showed me contempt. She showed me love. You don't know who I am. She does. I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. Worthy of the most effusive, extravagant expressions of love of more than a billion bottles of alabaster perfume and more than a million kisses and of acts of worship more glorious than what this woman has even shown us by her devotion. She is doing what every human being was made to do, to love the Lord her God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why Jesus receives her worship. That's why Jesus is not embarrassed by her acts of devotion. Simon would rather Jesus kick her away, back into her life of sin. But Jesus says, she gets me. She loves me. And I love her. And then only at this point does he say, therefore I tell you her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. There's the meaning of the passage right there. Great love shown because she's experienced great forgiveness. Then Jesus, verse 48, said to her, your sins are forgiven. That must have been so sweet to her ears. Here is a woman who feels her sin deeply, convicted, guilty, ashamed. And Jesus declares forgiveness over her. Let me be really clear that Jesus isn't saying that your great act of love and devotion has led me to forgive you. No, that's not the way salvation works. That's not the way Jesus intends it to be uh, understood. In fact, the parable makes the order of this super, super clear. Forgiveness of the debt comes first. Love is then the response. So her love is evidence of forgiveness already received. But what reassurance this is for a woman who feels deeply about past sins, about the way that she's lived her life. You feel like her? To sinners who know their sin as deeply as she does, I think forgiveness is often hard to grasp. When you look back in your life and how you've lived before you were a Christian, since you were a Christian, negatively stated the sinful acts that you have committed, the sinful things that you have done, 
not even thinking about sins of omission, the, the acts of defiance and rebellion against God that have gone without any real concern in your hearts because of the thoughtlessness of us. It's hard when we reflect, even as we're about to take the Lord's Supper together, those symbols of his body broken, his blood shed, it's like, I, like I'm forgiven? And he loves me? I still look back on my own life and the way I lived before a Christian, I was a Christian. And at times, I just still can't quite believe that he forgives me. Can you? We're so undeserving, and yet he does. His words to the woman carry the sense that her sins have been forgiven and will remain forgiven. Nothing's changed since she's professed her faith. She was forgiven there and then. She's still forgiven now, and the same is true for us if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. But I think she knows that now. I think that's why she is so effusive and extravagant in the expression of that love. I, she, must, she must have been thinking, I've got to say thanks. I've got, to, I've got to just take hold of him. I've got to just show him, I've got to show him how grateful I am and how much I love him in response to the way that he's loved me. And of course, that's not all he says. He not only says, your sins are forgiven. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's not that your faith is a work. It's not that that's the, okay, now you believe, okay, now you're in. He is saying to her that it's, you're saved by faith, not by works. Not like Simon the Pharisee here, who's trying to earn his salvation. He said, it's not by works, not like these blind guides have told you. No, salvation is a gift offered in love. To receive it, you need only believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior. And did you hear his reassurance in verse 50? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. I love you. You love me. There's nothing that's going to change that. You're now free from the lingering effects of guilt. Free from the shame of Satan's accusations. Why? Because on the cross, I bore it all. I paid the penalty for your sin and I made away with your shame and guilt. None of the accusations that can be leveled at you will fly. I don't know if you saw a few months ago the... The, uh, on the news, the climate activists who entered the National Gallery in London and threw Heinz tomato soup all over Van Gogh's sunflower painting. Priceless piece of art. And then they glued themselves to it, just to top it off. And people were absolutely fizzing on social media about such flagrant, thoughtless vandalism Everybody was just getting all really worked up about it until a gallery spokesman later came on and just kind of spoke very calmly and said, it's okay, everyone. 
there's a pane of strong glass, invisible to the eye, covering the painting. Nothing thrown at this painting will stick. And that's how it is, that's how it is with us and Satan's accusations against us. No matter what he throws at us, no matter if he says, who are you to stand there with all those people at Charlotte Chapel praising God, singing before the throne of God above, I have a great and perfect plea. I've got a plea against you, guilty. Not a word of those accusations stick. That's why, because your sins are forgiven. And that's why we can go in peace with glad and thankful hearts. Because the great debt that you owed for the sins that you had committed, the great debt that I owed for the sins I've committed, they're cancelled. Therefore, we have a constant, ongoing peace with God. That cannot be said of you if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. If you can't say the cross of Jesus Christ is the very epicenter of my life, everything I do as I live my life is lived from that at the center. None of this is true of you if you don't say, of all the people that I know, Jesus Christ is very clearly the person I love the most. Well, I want you to know that you have hope extended to you like Simon has in this parable and in this story. Your sinful debt can be cancelled by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And I encourage you to do that tonight. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved and receive his love. But what about us as believers? How grateful are we for the salvation that we know? And does it show? Is that love that we say we have for Christ as Christians self-evident? and plain to the point that it might even make some people around us feel a bit wow that's uh, awkward extravagant full of emotion like hers is this woman yes it should be we should be expressive with our joy doesn't mean we need to be jumping about and dancing we're still most of us, some of us are still Brits. But it should be heartfelt. And this joy, this love should certainly be communicated. Because if we've truly, if forgiveness truly does awaken and save sinners, an overwhelming and self-evident love for Jesus, then actually maybe we need to spend a bit more time by recalling the sin that he canceled and the way that he canceled it. And remembering those declarations over that woman, remembering 
what, that these are declarations he makes over us, your sins are forgiven. You're saved by faith. Go in peace. And of course, we must without shame show that we love Jesus dearly before a watching world. And we can't pour out the devotion, that our devotion on the physical body of Jesus here and now. He's in heaven, we're on earth. But we can pour out our devotion on the spiritual body of Christ, the church. As he himself said, acts of love done for any of his own are done to him and for him. So let our love for Christ and submission to him be seen in effusive, extravagant acts of selfless love for each other. And maybe our world will see him and have their debts cancelled too. Nicholas went and sat surrounded by the children he saved from certain death, expressing heartfelt love for a mere hour. Soon, Christ will return and he will be surrounded by all that he has rescued from eternal death, expressing their heartfelt love and gratitude forever. And there will be nothing like it. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray to him. Please take a moment in the quietness just to offer your own prayers of response. Whether expressions of love through prayer or prayers of faith, new faith in him. And let's stand and sing in response to him before we come to take the Lord's Supper. Man of sorrows. Let's stand. And let's
we come to take uh, the Lord's Supper together, uh, we take these uh, symbols of uh, the Lord Jesus' body broken for us, the bread and his blood shed, poured out for us, uh, the wine. We take these symbols in faith, uh, appropriating to ourselves the, the forgiveness, the joy that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness that he won for us on the cross. And we invite anyone who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ and who knows they are sinners in need of a Savior and who delight to look to him for salvation, to take and eat in faith with repentance and with joy. If you're here tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, you're or if you are a Christian and not in good standing with your brothers and sisters, then the Bible says it is a good thing for you to let these elements pass you by and reflect on what it's about or go and restore those relationships. But we take and eat brothers and sisters who believe in faith and with great thanks for the great salvation we have come to know. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And that's what we ought to do now in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Take a few seconds to offer your own prayers of confession and repentance. And then I'll lead us in thanksgiving for our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we come before you as needy children with hearts full of praise and gratitude for the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that we have found in him. Uh, we know from your words how we, before we came to know him, were described. We were dead in our sins like the debtors in the parable Jesus told in Luke 7, unable to save ourselves, unable to clear our own debts, hopeless in any attempt to revive ourselves and to make ourselves right with you. And that's why we're so glad of your love and your pursuit of your own glory, evidenced in the fact that you made us alive with Christ you sent him to be our savior, our redeemer, our rescuer, to save us from our sins and from their penalty with the promise that one day when we see him, we will be fully free and live out the reality of the forgiveness that we know right now in his name. But Father, we confess that even as your children, 
we walk in ways that are not in keeping with your gospel, not worthy of those who call themselves Christian. Uh, we have sinned against you and we are sorry. And how glad we are that we are encouraged by you as your children to know that our sins have been forgiven and to therefore come and confess these sins in the assurance of your peace that none of the accusations stick and indeed that our hearts through confession are revived. As we take this bread, the symbol of the Lord's body broken, and this blood, these, these, that great reminder of the fact that it is by his shed blood that we have been saved. We, are, we rejoice. We remember even as we take these tangible elements in our mouths that we have in our hearts salvation. And Lord, we are so undeserving. And we are so grateful. Your word says that the cross is the ongoing demonstration of your love for us. And we take this supper tonight in this simple way, in obedience to Christ, not just as a way to confess our sins together, but as a way of saying that we love you. Thank you so much for your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, the servers will bring the bread to you first. Please uh, take a piece, hold on to it. Uh, once everyone's been served, I'll read from God's word and we'll eat together. Apostle Paul writes, 
for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, please, uh, once you're served uh, one of the cups, keep hold of it. And once everyone's been served, we will eat together. If you want to know what to do during this time, you want to know how to pray, uh, turn to Psalm 51 in your Bibles and pray through that as we're served. In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins 
having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them 